0: Of that series. But today, can I just tell you what the kingdom of God is like? Today, I want to start a series and communicate to you that the kingdom of God is upside down. The kingdom of God is uncommon. It is unnatural to our carnal minds. And, and I just, I believe it is so imperative for the church. Hear me. Especially over the next 25 days up until this presidential election, and maybe even more importantly, after the election, I believe it is so critically important that we understand what the kingdom of God looks like, what kingdom our allegiance is to, and what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom. Because I can promise you, it doesn't look like worldly kingdoms. It doesn't look like worldly plans. Paul the apostle said it like this very clearly in Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 he said but our citizenship is in heaven it's in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there the lord jesus christ can i tell you that your citizenship your your character ought to be a reflection of where your citizenship is and in the kingdom of god it is is not upside down in the sense that it's wrong, but from the worldly vantage point, it is completely upside down. And I want to tell you a couple reasons why today. If you're a note taker, number one, the kingdom of God is upside down because the way up is down in God's kingdom. The way up is down. Here's how the brother of Jesus explained it. James chapter four, verse 10. He said, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You know, the oldest sin is pride. Satan wanted to be like God. He tried to usurp God's authority, and he and a third of the the angels that followed him were kicked out of heaven. And the first human sin was pride. The enemy came to Eve in the garden. How many of you remember this story in Genesis chapter 3? And he said, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from the tree of the garden? Do you remember it? He said, is that, is that what he really said? I think it's verse 4. He said, you will certainly not die if you eat from that tree. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And you will be like God. You will know. Good and evil. And and that that worked, that temptation, all of a sudden fired in, in the carnal mind of Eve. She had seen that the tree was good for food. She had saw that it was pleasing to the eye. But all of a sudden, now she perceived that it was good for gaining wisdom. And the Bible says she took and she ate and she gave it to her husband who was with her and they both ate. Why? They had a desire in them that I can know as much as God. I can be like God. When Jesus introduced the kingdom, his inaugural sermon, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, six and seven. He began with what we could call the preamble to the sermon. It's the Beatitudes. He begins to list, basically the Beatitudes are the attitudes that are reflected in the citizens of the kingdom of God. That's what this list is. He says, this is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom that I'm introducing. And the very first one, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 3 with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you know what he meant when he said that? He did. I'll tell you what he didn't mean. He didn't mean you're blessed if you have a, a victim mentality, you know, I'm poor in spirit. He didn't mean you're blessed if, if you have a... a, a a low self-esteem, he didn't say you're blessed if you're broke. He said you're blessed if you're poor in spirit. In other words, the condition of becoming a part of the kingdom of God is recognizing this, that in the economy of heaven, I have nothing to offer. In the economy of heaven, I have nothing that, that earns my salvation, that affords me salvation, that deserves a rightful place in God's kingdom. And so when you come to the kingdom, you come impoverished, you come as a beggar, you come in need of grace, because without grace, you can't enter the kingdom. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. What's he saying? If you go low, if you humble yourself, if you come needing a savior and a Lord, then yours is the kingdom. You'll be exalted. Now, Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends, and an apostle of the church. And, and let me just tell you, Peter struggled to understand that the upside-down kingdom of God meant that the way down is up. If you've got your Bible with you, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Because I want to show you the struggle that Peter dealt with. Matthew chapter 16, we get this incredible, incredible statement of faith. From Peter. Jesus had asked, Who do people say that I am? And then he turned the question on the disciples and he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter, as always, he's the first one to speak. He's, he opens his mouth, but this time he gets it right. And here's what Peter says in verse 16 of Matthew 16 Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Let's read a little farther today. It says, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That's a powerful statement right there. I mean, Peter just declared the lordship of Jesus, and Jesus in turn said, Peter, that confession that you made, that is the foundation for the kingdom that I'm building. I'm going to build my kingdom on what you just said, and not just that, but in the next verse, Jesus goes on to say, and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. I mean, come on, I'm going to give you the keys. That means whatever you loose on the earth is going to be loose in heaven. Whatever you bind on the earth is going to be bound in heaven. I mean, Peter, in this moment, he's got to be feeling pretty good, right? I mean, Jesus said, you made the statement I'm building the kingdom on, and you have the keys to the kingdom. But what surprised Peter and us, even more than that, is what happened just a couple verses later. Because Jesus then goes on in verse 21 to begin to tell them what has to happen. Jesus said, speaking of himself, the Son of Man is going into Jerusalem and He says, I must go to Jerusalem and I must suffer many. He said, I must suffer many things at the hands of the the elders and the chief priests. He tells them that the son of man must be killed. But on the third day, he'll rise again. Now imagine how shocked Peter must have felt if he just He just learned that God's going to build his kingdom, and and the thing that I said was the right thing, and and I'm going to have the keys to the kingdom, and this is going to be awesome. And then Jesus says, now pay attention, guys, because I'm going to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me. And Peter says, "Hold, hold up, wait a minute. And look at the next verse, verse 22. says, Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. Can I just say that has to be the most contradictory, paradoxical statement in all the Bible? Never, Lord. Let me talk about an oxymoron. That's like jumbo shrimp, you know? I mean, to be the Lord means you're in control. To be the Lord means you are supreme. Everything you say, I follow. You're Lord. I'm follower. And he says, never, Lord. And I just wonder how many of us kind of have that relationship with the Lord, where we want him to be Lord of all, so long as all that he has in mind is all that we want him to do. And the moment God says, I'm going to do something that disagrees with your plan and your agenda, we start to push back. And that's what Peter does. He pushes back and then Jesus pushes back harder. Jesus looks at him and he says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, come on, that's harsh. I mean, I'm all for loving rebuke. I'm all for words of correction. But he called him the devil. I mean, I mean, just a couple verses earlier, he said, Peter, you're the rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build the church. Now he looks at him and he says, get behind me, Satan. Why? He said, because you're a stumbling block to me. Because you don't have the kingdom of God in mind. You've got your own plans, your own concerns in mind. And Jesus rebukes him harshly because Peter his understanding of kings and kingdoms were solely based on the culture that he grew up in. You see, if you study church history, you can learn something fascinating that 200 years before Jesus came on the scene, there was an oppression by the Greeks who ruled over Israel and they banned the practice of Judaism and they slaughtered anyone who resisted. There was mass bloodshed, but the Jews didn't go down quietly. In fact, history tells us that they were led by a man named Judas the Maccabee, which literally means the hammer. And Judas brought the hammer, and he caused a revolt. And so the Jews, donned with swords, baptized in blood, rose up against their Gentile overlords. They massacred thousands. This is just a couple hundred years before Jesus was born on a, quote, silent night. I'm telling you, it wasn't very silent. They massacred thousands. And a few decades later, the Maccabees reclaimed their religious and political freedom in a quasi-messianic kingdom, and they did it through violent force. And so the success of the Maccabeans, it shaped the understanding of the Jews when it came to setting up a kingdom. When it came to inaugurating a kingdom, this was their mindset. So now Jesus starts talking about a kingdom, and Peter, he cannot imagine a successful kingdom that involves surrender, much less the killing of the king. Like, that just doesn't make sense. That's not how you do it, Jesus. We all heard the stories. We all grew up with the same stories but let's not stay too long in Israel's history because here's my concern this morning. My concern is that maybe we would miss out on the kingdom and on the agenda that God has for the kingdom because of our 200 years of history as Americans. See, if we're not careful, we can so contextualize what God wants to do in his kingdom to what we have known and understood as Christianity in America that we can miss out on the bigger picture of what God wants to do. Can I tell you today that that God's kingdom agenda is not hinging on an election in 25 days? That God's kingdom agenda is not hinging on the, the seating of a Supreme Court justice. Can I declare to you today that we have a constitution that is far more enduring than the one that the Supreme Court is set to uphold? God has a plan and a purpose that extends far beyond the history or the future of this great nation that we live in. And here's the danger for us and for Peter. He was so passionate about the kingdom that he wanted to see that he almost missed out completely on the kingdom that God was establishing. In fact, when you look at the story we see that Peter almost missed out entirely on the plan and purpose that God had for him. God help us today that we don't find ourselves in opposition to what he's doing. Now, now let me just make a statement here about here and now. Does God care about this election coming up, the the presidential election of 2020? Yes, I believe he does. I believe it matters. The Bible says this in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse one, it says, in the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all he pleases. God is just channeling the heart of kings, presidents, and politicians in the direction that he wants them to go towards the people that he wants them to go. I think it matters to God. Should it matter to us? I think it should. In fact, I think you have a a moral obligation, a civic responsibility. God, God made you in, to live in this nation. At least most of us, we're American citizens. And, and if you are, then you ought to fulfill your civic duty. You ought to vote. In fact, we made our church available to the local office of elections. And so on November 4th, the people that live in this community are actually going to come to the church to cast their ballot for the presidential election. I think, that, I think it's important. I think it's important that, that we give people the opportunity to cast their vote. Besides that, I'll do anything short of sin to get people to come into the church. So, you know, if they won't come to meet Jesus, maybe they'll come to, to cast their vote and we can lower the, the barriers of, of walking through the doors of the church. But I think it matters. I think it's important that we're involved in those things. But it's more important that we remember which kingdom we represent. It's more important that we remember to conduct ourselves in a way that reflects our citizenship. And can I tell you, when it comes to the upside down kingdom of God, the way up is down. Humility wins God's favor. Humility wins God's favor. Peter was so zealous about his ideas for the kingdom that the closer Jesus got to the cross, the farther Peter Fell away. In fact, in Luke's gospel, he gives us a little one-sentence insight into into what was happening in Peter's life as Jesus was arrested. The Bible says in in Luke, but Peter followed at a distance. What What a telling story. As Jesus is moving towards God's preordained purpose, He's going to the cross. Peter began to follow at a distance. And many of you know the story. Before the trial was even done that night, Peter denied three times that he even knew Jesus. He denied that he even knew him. Why? Because he was so consumed with the reality that you can't build a kingdom by killing the king. He did not understand that in the upside down kingdom of God, death will be conquered by death. And so he resisted the work. And then years later, he wrote a letter to the church. We have it recorded as First Peter. And in chapter 5, verse 6, he gave, he gave a valuable lesson that he learned the hard way. He said this in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Humble yourselves, he said humble yourself, go low. If you'll stay humble, God will lift you up. It might look like defeat, but God's got a plan. God's working beyond what you can see. So just stay humble. Don't get prideful because just the verse before that, he quoted one of Solomon's life hacks in Proverbs chapter three. And he said this, he said, God opposes the proud, but he gives favor to the humble. So when you resist the plan of God, when you get prideful, not only are you working against God's kingdom agenda, he says God opposes you. Now I think we can all agree that's not the side that we want to be on. We don't want to be opposing God, and we certainly don't want to have God opposing us. But if you'll stay faithful, if you'll stay humble, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Can I declare to you today, church, there is nothing that can stop the plan of God. There's nothing that can stop what God is doing. You just need to get that in your mind today. Maybe it needs to become the, 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 the statement of your faith, especially throughout this next month, as people start to lose their minds off lower, less significant issues and battles and elections. I'm not saying those things don't matter. I'm just saying they they operate at a far lower level than the kingdom of God. Here's what you need to keep in mind. Nothing can stop the kingdom that God is building. Jesus has already won. There's a story in church history. Hudson Taylor was a pioneer missionary to China. For 51 years, up until he died in 1905, he spread the gospel in inland China and That work just continued after his death until in the 1940s, missionary organizations estimated that there was one million Christians in China. But in the late 1940s, because of political maneuvers that were happening on the global stage, the bamboo curtain was raised and the Mao dynasty kicked all of the missionaries out of China and closed all the churches. And in the natural, it looked like the work that God had done through missionaries like Hudson Taylor and those that followed him, it looked like it had all come to a screeching halt. Churches were closed. Believers were, were forced to, to disband, and missionaries were sent home. And for three decades, we didn't know. We didn't know what or if anything God was doing in China until the late 70s and the bamboo curtain began to crack. And and we saw, for the first time, a glimpse at the church in China. And everyone was wondering what happened with that remnant people of a million believers that God had raised up in the previous century. And when they went back into China, they discovered, by conservative estimates, there were 20 million believers who had been meeting underground. They had been meeting in secret gatherings. They had been meeting in enclosed meetings. They didn't have the worship and the, the, the band and the steeples over their buildings, but they continued to seek God. They went low. They humbled themselves, and they served God, and God continued to build his kingdom. Can I just say, set all of us at ease? I, I know elections matter. I know what happens in a nation. It matters. But can I just say when it comes to the kingdom, God's already won. God has already won. So you can just kind of take a sigh of relief and say, whatever happens, I understand that God has already won. He's going to accomplish his purpose. There's nothing that can stop the church except the church. Let me tell you a second reason that that this kingdom is upside down. It's upside down because to, to go high, you have to go low but it's also upside down because the weak are made strong in the kingdom. The weak are made strong. The apostle Paul said he was given a thorn in his flesh. We don't exactly know what that was, but he said there was something that was given to me that kept me humble. It was a thorn in my flesh. It was a a messenger of Satan. It tormented me. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, here's what he said about that. In verse 8, he said, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. It might have been a physical sickness. It might have been a spiritual battle. Some believe it was, it was uh, poor eyesight. But for whatever it was, he said, I prayed three times that God would take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I don't know what you've asked God to strengthen you from. I don't know what you've asked God to take away from you. And maybe you've even been frustrated because it seems like God's not lifting the burden. God's not removing the thorn in your flesh. But God's word to, Peter, or to Paul was simply this, my grace is sufficient for you. And so look at the response. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Why? Because for when I am weak, I am strong. Now, come on, no, you're not. I mean, who says that? When I'm weak, I'm strong. How many of you know that doesn't make any sense outside of the kingdom of God? Nobody says I'm strong strong when I'm weak. No, when you're weak, you're weak. And if you're weak, you're going to get run over. Somebody else is going to take advantage of your weakness. They're going to step on your back and they're going to steal the job you've been fighting for. And they're going to get the promotion. And you're going to get left out because it's survival of the fittest. But Paul understood because God's grace is sufficient, that when I'm weak, I'm strong. So in the same way that we enter the kingdom saying, I can't save myself, so I've got to come, poor in spirit. I got to come humble. In the same way that we come in saying, I can't save myself, we also come into the kingdom and we serve in the kingdom realizing that I'm not strong enough on my own. That God's kingdom doesn't advance through me unless his grace is sufficient, unless he strengthens me. Jesus said it explicitly in John chapter 15 and 5. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's how much you need God's strength. Now, Peter struggled with that first principle. Moses struggled with this one. Moses had a hard time understanding that the weak are made strong. How many of you remember when God met Moses at a burning bush? You remember that moment where God spoke to him at the burning bush and he called him? He said, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to deliver my people. And Moses responded in this moment. He said, who am I? Who am I that you would send me? And God said, I'm going to go with you, Moses. And then Moses responded, But, but what if they ask me your name? And he said, Tell them I am that I am. That is my name, and that who's, that's who sent you. So then you get into Exodus 4, and Moses starts asking, but, but what if they don't listen? What if they don't believe me? And God says, Okay, Moses, I'm going to give you three miracles to prove that I'm with you and that I'm sending you. And then Moses responds again, but I'm not a good communicator. And and God says, listen, I'm going to help you to speak. Now go. And after all of that, Moses responds again. This is Exodus chapter four, verse 13. But Moses said, pardon your servant. Lord, please, send someone else. So finally, God says, okay, look, you can take your brother Aaron with you. (laughs) Let him do the talking. You just carry the stick, all right? Like, you got to go. But why do I tell that story? I I tell you that because, well, here's what the Bible says about him. Numbers chapter 12, three says, now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of, of the earth. But can I tell you that that burning bush experience was not the first time that Moses heard God's call? Yeah, Moses was a humble man now. But 40 years earlier, Moses felt the call. 40 years before this, Moses was a young man. And the Bible says in Exodus 2, he went out and he saw an Egyptian who was beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And Moses looked around And he felt a righteous indignation that God needed somebody to deliver the people. And so, in all of his own zeal, in all of his own strength, he looked to make sure the coast was clear. And the Bible says he killed that Egyptian and he buried him in the sand. Moses was convinced God was going to use him to be the deliverer. And he went out in his own strength and he did something God never asked him to do. The next day, word got around of what he had done and the people turned their back on Moses. And he fled to the wilderness. He spent the next 40 years on the backside of a wilderness. It took 40 years to humble Moses. It took 40 years to get him to the place where he would recognize his own weakness. God wants us to recognize today that our strength is not our strength, but our strength comes from the Lord. And in his kingdom, he said, the weak are made strong. The prophet Jeremiah said it like this. He said, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom or the strong boast in their strength or the rich boast in their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me. He said, you can boast in that, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth for in these I delight. You wanna boast about something? Boast about the fact that you know the Lord. Boast about the fact that your name is written down in heaven. And so God sometimes takes us through a wilderness because it's in the wilderness that that our strength is stripped away. And you can see it all, all through scriptures. Moses went through a wilderness experience. Abraham went through a wilderness experience. Joseph had a wilderness experience. Elijah had a wilderness experience. Even Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. And so many times, it's in the wilderness season that God will take away every strength that we think we can depend on until we get to the place that we recognize He's the only one we ever had. Sometimes God wants to bring you to the place where you depend on Him to be your strength. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted and seated on His throne and the train of His robe Build the temple Isaiah had incredible visions of God God used him in an incredible way but I don't believe it's a coincidence that it happened in the year King Uzziah died you know Uzziah means strength so in other words in the year that my strength died I saw the Lord And it's for that very reason that sometimes God will take us through a wilderness. It's for that reason that God will take us into seasons where we don't know what we're gonna do because our strength died. How many of you would agree 2020's kind of felt like that? This was the year my strength died, but I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. What what do you think would be the most absurd and foolish way to establish a kingdom? Well, probably to start out by killing the king. And what would be the most, the weakest thing you could do? the, The weakest thing you could do would be to not just kill the king, but to humiliate the king. To strip him naked and hang him on a cross. To be a spectacle for everyone to look at and gawk at and laugh at. And yet that's exactly what God did in his foreknowledge. And Paul the apostle wrote about it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong.